what they found was these wider stance sumo squats actually used less glutes than the more narrow stance toes straight ahead because in order for a muscle to optimally contract, it needs to stretch first. So if you got this wide sumo squat where your toes are pointing out, sure, you might be able to lift a little bit more because your bar path is different and you're using different levers, but ultimately you're not going to be able to create that stretch in your glutes at the bottom position of internal rotation. Your glutes are hip extensors and external rotators. So you're creating that ability for them to stretch, to contract, which is why the wide stance squat actually uses more AD doctors and glutes, which is counterintuitive to what a lot of people think. That was Connor Harris, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, uh, lactate sports like swimming, 100 meter freestyle, and not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method. I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So uh, I've been utilizing the air bands. I really enjoy it, both the feeling of training of while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual result of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. Uh, they've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into air bands. Uh, SimplyFaster.com also has B Strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro, and this is a new option for velocity-based training barbell tracking it provides valuable load-based data including speed in all phases of a lift and it delivers key metrics such as power velocity distance as well as duration of effort the vmax pro system measures any lift you can think of it's portable durable and intuitive you can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor simplyfaster.com's online store let's get on to the show in sports performance training strength and conditioning one of the areas that i see being talked about more and more often that is becoming more popular is lift and movement biomechanics and how do those biomechanics fit with human biomechanics it really is exciting to me the more that we can take the things that we do in the gym and get away from just the powerlifting paradigm the bodybuilding paradigm the olympic lifting paradigm not that those each of those entities are great things but when we fit the training around the human being around the gait cycle i think that's really when the magic happens in training and when we can help the really athletes who are, I guess, outside the bell curve, you could say, to reach their highest potential, as well as those who are inside it. It just helps us to know how and why when we change a front squat to a back squat, a foot flat squat to heels elevated, putting a dumbbell on the left side, putting a dumbbell on the right side of the body. How and why are we doing these things and how does it change the movement mechanics? For that topic, I'm really excited to have our guest, Connor Harris. Connor is a strength and conditioning coach who specializes in biomechanics and movement quality. He is the founder of Pinnacle Performance in Portland, Oregon, and there Connor trains all levels of athletes and general population clientele. Connor has worked in a wide variety of environments and has had tremendous mentors in his time as a sports performance coach. He also educates thousands of coaches through his Instagram account, where he provides very detailed biomechanical explanations in a really clear manner. So if you're not familiar with Connor's account, you're going to be, or even if you are, you're going to be really excited for this conversation. 
On the show, he's going to be taking us through concepts of late and early stance dominance in athletes. So for example, why are basketball players very late stance dominant? And he's then going to take us through how various split squat variations are going to preferentially engage those stance dynamics uh, for the purposes of either injury prevention and bringing balance to an athlete or enhancing performance, knowing exactly what part of the gait cycle we are going to be pushing when we do a particular type of movement. He's also going to talk about how squatting with the heels elevated or hinging with the toes elevated is going to provide specific benefits to the athlete and how it impacts them rotationally. And we're going to finish with Connor giving us some great ideas on how to restore internal rotation to athletes, as well as him sharing some big rocks of athletic glute activation. How do we leverage the stretch shortening cycle in particular movements, as well as standard uh, squatting variations to get athletes a greater stretch shortening and activation of their glutes. This was a really cool show. And honestly, uh, in editing it and going over it again after originally talking to Connor, I immediately had some tools to use with some clients that I work with who have some really interesting rotations to them. And just looking at how to tweak their split squat really did bring the sessions to the next level. And I'm really excited for the knowledge potential, both the knowledge potential and the practical potential that this show offers. It was really great having Connor on the show. Let's get on to episode 264. So one of the big things that I've, I've been on this topic for a while, but, and we just had Gary Ward on the podcast recently. So pronation of the foot and supination, always important things to take a look at. What are some things that you feel help athletes focus on uh, pronation in the gym via common exercises? And before you answer that too, if you could just maybe just give a quick, you know, your take on, you know, defining pronation and supination, because it's like, you know, everyone who's been listening to those terms for a while, it's like, oh, of course I know. But so, so talk about that. And then how do we get that via common exercises in the gym that might help athletes get more experience or facilitate those positions better? For sure. I think when it comes to pronation, I take actually a lot from Gary Ward. I had Gary Ward on my podcast at one point. And he really, that was my first introduction to his concepts. And that really, really sort of opened my eyes towards a different perspective on pronation and this idea that it's a relative motion. It's not just the ankle collapsing inwards. It's this relative motion between the rear foot and the forefoot. And that's really what I've been focusing on ever since. And I've gotten a lot of really good results with people using Gary Ward's wedges Mm -hmm. as opposed to just your traditional, you know, knee over toe, dorsiflexion drill. And what pronation really is, is you need that tibial internal rotation for that to ultimately occur. And you can do drills for it. You can get someone to do basic mobility things. But the problem with a lot of people is that they're already biased towards... And I look at things in the lens of, of gate mechanics, not in the sense of like, oh, you're literally stuck in mid or late stance or whatever, just more so your joint positions, your tests all reflect that you spend a lot of time in late stance. Like a basketball player is a perfect example of someone who is constantly on their toes to be athletic. And these people often present with a certain foot presentation where their toes are pointing away from the midline of their body. Because in late stance, we have more of our weight on our forefoot, obviously our heels off the ground and the toes go out where they migrate out. So people will literally take their shoes and socks off and they'll be in a late stance presentation of a foot where their toes are pointing away. And we see this time and time again, bunions can form that way. So I kind of look at it that way, but also my interventions are more so geared around first and foremost, can you control your center of mass? Can you 
go from heel strike to mid stance to toe off, are you able to transition through that lateral border of the heel to the big toe? And that's what's really important because if you strike the ground and you don't have that nice heel reference, then it's going to be really difficult to get your shin to translate more forward if you're starting in a position where you can't get the pronation to resupination. So a couple of ways you can really bias pronation. I think my best tool, if I'm going to get very specific, are the wedges of Gary Ward. Mm -hmm. But if you have someone with these very quote unquote late stance feet, you can get them in a position where you simply just do a heel elevation. Imagine you're doing a split squat, but you have a heel elevation on a wedge. You can start them in a position where they're biasing tibial external rotation because of that heel elevation. And then you can do that traditional push your knee over your toe. And that's going to allow for that tibia to translate forward into internal rotation. You might get some pronation, but what you're really doing is preventing them from over pronating. So these people with very, quote unquote, again, late stance feet tend to have that pronation at their foot. And some people would call that over pronation. Other people would call that just a compensation that's necessary for athletic performance. I think it varies depending on the individual. But if it is truly an issue, then elevating the heel can be really, really beneficial because you're starting them in that negative tibia angle. Because imagine when you strike the ground in just normal walking gait, you go from a negative tibia angle to a vertical tibia angle to a positive tibia. angle. So to set them up in that early stance, you can use that heel elevation. And I think that's a really good way to do it. If you wanted to drive more pronation on a foot where let's say they didn't have that over pronated foot to start, what you can do is just drive the, anything that drives the knee over the toe a lot is going to allow for that tibial internal rotation to occur as well as pronation of the foot. So something like a rear foot elevated split squat can be a really good way to do that. That can help, assuming you're keeping those three points of contact in your tripod, that can be a really good way to drive that tibia going forward over the toe to help you get some of that pronation. And I think the last thing that I would probably think about that would be applicable to a you know, group setting or where you don't have to get super individual would be a contralateral load. So let's say you're doing just a regular split squat, no elevation, but you had a contralateral load, meaning that if your right foot was forward, you had your weight in your left hand. That's going to pull you more inwards towards the midline of your foot. And that's also going to help you find your heel better. So really, when I think of a contralateral load, I'm thinking of that as a reference to find your heel and midfoot better. An ipsilateral load is usually better for finding midfoot to toe off. So if I wanted to get that earlier phase of pronation, I'm a fan of using that contralateral load in the right context with the right positioning to allow for that person to naturally find that pronation without having to say like, hey, I want you to pronate. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of people too, when they, they think of pronation, they do just think about trying to like jam that knee in towards the middle to get the foot to flatten or something mm -hmm. like that, where it's, it's a little more, um, like I like your definition you said right away, like the heel bone as Gary and I were just talking about and, um, that heel bone tipping in that whole length of the foot, like the second toe pushing forward a little bit. And one thing you said, well, first I do want to get into the nuts and bolts of those exercises. And I really like that counterlateral thing. So maybe we'll get into that a little mm -hmm. bit more too with the, with the heel referencing. And I know a lot of people on social media are posting about the heel, the importance of referencing the heel. And there's that pendulum that swings too. It's like, well, we need to be forefoot dominant, but we also need to reference the heel. And so yeah. it's, it's cool to think about that, like that athlete who might be too toey 
to be able to throw a weight on the contralateral side to give them what they don't have. I, I like that. I'll take it back to something you said early on, which was testing late stance or test you test mm-hmm. them and they're very late stance dominant or you you mentioned like the whole toes out thing i mean i guess you could go different ways with that right like you said either their compensatory motion for their at their sport and they're not in pain mm-hmm. <laughs> or maybe they have it the toes out and they are dysfunctional and they do get injured and things like that but that just leads me to how do you test for that that someone is like a late stance dominant individual versus early stance or or any sort of phase in between I use it as more of like a conceptual thing to help understand where this person's body is in space, just where they're comfortable, generally speaking. Let's say this person's standing up and they have a big anterior pelvic toe. What's that going to do to your center of mass? If you were to stand up and arch your low back, your weight gets pushed onto your toes. So if this person can't reciprocate out of that, if they're stuck in that extension pattern, then their weight's going to be chronically pushed onto their toes. So usually you see people, and I think basketball players are a fantastic representation of this, uh, of people who are extended because they need that extension. I'm not trying to demonize extension. I think it's extremely necessary. But if they're chronically there and their weight is always sort of forward, then those toes are going to be in a state where the weight's always for. That means that the toes are going to migrate outwards. The tibia is probably going to be in external rotation and they're going to have that anterior orientation of the pelvis. I think a lot of times what helps these people is coming back and like you mentioned, finding those heels because then you can go from that negative to vertical to positive shin angle instead of just sort of starting in mid to late stance and not really having anywhere else to go from there. I find that too, just... I've been diving into the Adarian bar concepts a lot more. And I've found that if you bring people back a little bit, that allows for more of that shin drop, that forward translation of the shin. Because if they start already on their toes, Mm -hmm. there's not a whole lot of room for that shin to go. Yeah, that was one of the first things I learned from Adarian was Mm -hmm. if you're going to do anything with a limb, it it takes time. And there has to be, if you're going to, like, if you were going to drive your knee more in, in jumping, you need to have time on your foot you have to use your whole foot to give time for the knee to get a certain width or length or something like that that was one of those first real big connections that i made in working with him so yeah that makes sense and i I like yeah the idea too that an athlete i guess on the other side an athlete who is maybe a little bit too heel heavy or maybe in the realm of like heel striking or something like that then you would choose a same side load for a a split squat or something like that. I'm assuming that would be where you'd go for something like that. Someone who's too much on the heel, they need more same side loading with a dumbbell or whatever. And then someone who's too much on the forefoot, they need opposite side loading of the leg that's in front. Yeah, I think it would just depend on like what their limitations are. So if you had someone that, let's say they are biased towards heel strike, they can't propel well, this would be for people that are aware, like your narrow ISA type of individuals. But a lot of the times these narrows will be more biased towards heel strike originally. Like that's their primary baseline uh, compensation layer. And then you obviously can layer more stuff on top of that. But most narrows are originally biased towards heel strike and they're not very propulsive in nature. They can't get the push. And they're usually not as concentrically oriented. They can't, quote unquote, compress as much as a wide infrasternal angle. So what they need to do a lot of the times is find a good pronation strategy. So by doing that, that will allow them to reaccess that supination of the foot and also that late stance because they're usually not very good at producing force quite as well, relatively speaking. So 
you could do something like a rear foot elevated position with those people and a same side load that would help drive more weight naturally onto the mid to further forward on the foot onto the ball of the foot, which would force them to become more propulsive in nature because that weight, let's say you got your right foot forward weights in your right hand, you would have to create a larger propulsive strategy to prevent that weight from pulling you down to that side. And you could do that on something like a step up too. There's a lot of different ways you could do that. But if I really wanted to drive pronation, I might consider in some context a contralateral load. Because again, that weight is going to pull them inwards toward the midline of their foot. Yeah, I like that. That's the one thing that back when I started strength and conditioning or, or learning about human performance or you, you see the lifts and you see, you know, someone might have, a, you know, a dumbbell in each hand or one hand and no one would ever think about why, yeah. why you have a load on one side of the body versus the other. So just, just having that of an idea and how that corresponds to loading different parts of the foot is really helpful. I love the things that give yeah. us more window, like a, just more windows to look at the body and it, it helps us to really put those pieces together. One thing that you said, something clicked in my head and that was you were talking about narrow for sternal angles being a little bit more naturally heel biased, at least at first. And I was just thinking, and for people who haven't listened to the episodes of the show with the narrow or the wide infrasternal angle, the narrows are basically your elastic kind of bouncy ball type athletes and the, the wides are more of your, I guess, gorillas for lack of a better term. I'm sure it's different. It's, it's not quite exactly that, but the people who uh, will, are better squatters and narrows, better deadlifters and I'm definitely a narrow, uh, you know, high jumper, triple jumper in track. And always the further I got away from basketball, that always, no matter what, like that always really negatively impacted my ability to sprint and jump well. And as I hear you're talking, this is just my take is I think that as a narrow, it's almost like the basketball is all, it really helps with a lot of that late stance stuff. Whereas if you just go and you just run and do plyos and just a lot of linear stuff that's not necessarily change of direction or even um, like, I guess I'm trying to think about what part of basketball change of direction moving laterally specifically really biases that late stance and maybe you could help me with that. But I will say that full circle coming around, one thing that I've noticed that does seem to help me at least get back like a lot of my single leg jump and things and feel fast is uh, running with a low knee action intentionally <laughs> which is just basically late mm. stance running it's just late stance running and i'll do that and i'll do like a vertical jump between like sets like i'll run 150 200 meters and do a vertical and it just gets better and better and better every single time and perhaps within and then for me like i, I, I that's something i hadn't really thought about initially as much as well as like a, a narrow or an elastic being more naturally heel it makes sense to me but to me, it's like, that's what you need to be your fullest potential is almost get that opposite in a way. Like, I don't know what that would mean for a wide eye. say stuff that gives you more of your heel bounding. I don't know. But yeah, it was just a thought. I'm curious what, you know, what your take on that is, as well as why, why do like team sports like basketball emphasize the late so much, you know? It's interesting. I think uh, basketball athletes really and I, I hate to generalize, but a lot of them, and that's the sport, honestly, I'm most passionate about. I like to work with the most. I'd say basketball, baseball, my one and two. I think just looking at how basketball athletes tend to present, it's very, very similar a lot of the times because they're, con they're constantly in that defensive stance. Like think of how often a basketball player needs to be on their heels. It's just not very often because not yeah. many things that are athletic happen on the heels. I think a lot of athletes present 
kind of like that. Like a lot of athletes will be biased towards late stance. It just depends. Like, how are they going to get there? And how are they going to find that mid to late stance? Because when we run, it's more of a mid to late stance transition. So with basketball players in particular, we really see this. Lots of basketball players are really, really stiff. Uh, I've talked to some really high level NBA trainers who will say that, yeah, a lot of these really high level NBA players, they're some of the tightest people that you'll ever meet. But at the same time, they're also extremely fluid on the court. So that's why I think we can get too deep in the weeds sometimes of saying like, hey, your foot presents as a late stance foot. You can't access heel strike. Well, it depends. Like, is this person chronically injured? Is this person presenting massive red flags of injury risk? Then maybe we should probably think about that stuff. But I think a lot of these people, like sprinters are another good example. They have these feet that are collapsed. And I think that's to their benefit because that's helping them access their mechanics that maybe they didn't have when they were young or or an early training or, or whatever the case may be. So I think we should be hesitant and consider the context of this one individual before we start to say like, you need to do this or, or that. And I often find that, or I have found that if you intervene on an athlete who doesn't need that, they oftentimes don't get better. And sometimes they can get worse because when I first started learning this stuff, I thought I needed to correct everyone. And that's just, that's just not the case. But in terms of the basketball players and helping them find that heel strike, I think that goes kind of what we were talking about earlier. Like, let's say this person does need to find more of that quote unquote heel strike mechanic that will help restore a lot of the variability within their body as a whole. Because when you go into heel strike, your thorax is doing a certain position and your tibia and femur and pelvis is doing a certain position. And then that sets up transition for the rest of the gait cycle. So simply by quote unquote, finding your heel more, it's so much more than that, right? It's so much more than just finding your heel. You're setting up your body to be able to access other joint positions. And when we talk about gait, it's not like, yeah, sure. You're finding your heel that helps you access more heel strike mechanics, but it's, it's not just that. And it's easy to get hung up on it. You're actually restoring total variability within the thorax, within the pelvis by allowing this person to come back, so to speak. I like what you said about not feeling like you need to correct everything. I think that's something that is very easy to do, especially early on. We're armed with knowledge and we start to see things that are very towards the edge of the, what the human bandwidth could be, right? And like these athletes who are specialized in their sport. So what you're saying by that is, um, I mean, you, you have these athletes, these basketball players who present like that. Are you saying that you would not necessarily go to some of those heel referencing movements just because, you know, just to try to be this, I'm the strength coach, I'm doing my job, you know, type thing. Like, is there a threshold by which you would start to look to utilize these like like injury history if they've they've been hurt or it's there's a chance that that is causing them an issue or if it's an athlete who's a basketball like a lebron james right like someone yeah. who's who's the epitome of that and you know at least up until fairly recently didn't seem to have a lot of injury issues at all outside that i think the groin pull or whatever but how would you go about that like an athlete who is presenting some of these ways may or may not have been hurt and what exercises you do end up selecting in the program Definitely. That's a good question. So it depends on, let's say your extended late stance feet, and that's how you present. Can you still 
assume good positions in the weight room and in training. If you can't, then we need to probably provide some constraints and good exercise selection to allow you to do that. I'm a fan of creating those constraints that allow us to not have to say anything. And it just happens naturally as a result of that load constraint and the position of the feet, just like we were talking about with split squats. So let's say, for example, we got someone who presents just like that, but they don't have a lot of injuries. They're not really chronically injured. And, you know, let's say they're an Ironman on the court, then we still might have an issue in the weight room where they can't squat to even parallel. They can't get hip extension in a split squat. They can't hinge correctly. Then at that point, I think it's still appropriate to provide constraints to allow them to reaccess some of those joint positions. Let's say in order to get into the deepest part of a squat, you have to create external rotation of your pelvis and counter mutation of your sacrum, meaning that your sacrum bone, that thing in between those two pelvic bones needs to tip back and become more vertical. That needs to happen for you to get deepest into a squat. And a lot of athletes who are extended with a forward pelvis, that's going to be really hard for them to be able to do that. So by providing that heel elevation, that's the most basic example I can mm -hmm. think of is like bilateral heel elevation on wedges. That's going to allow them to bring their pelvis back in space, find their heels better and squat deeper. And I think that's totally appropriate. And hey, maybe they might get some external rotation back in the process. Maybe they might find some more variability in the in their pelvis as a result of that process. And I think that's a win. I don't think it's wrong to restore movement on a good athlete. I think it's probably not ideal to go and try and change this whole person, the way they move and the way they self-organize just because something looks slightly off. Another example would be, let's say they can't hinge very well, providing a slight toe elevation. So take that wedge, flip it around. So now they're the midfoot and forefoot is now kind of slanted upwards. That can help them hinge backwards, get into their hip, and even a single leg hinge variation. And now you're providing more internal rotation to that hip. Now you're providing a constraint which will allow them to load into that hip and come back out of it again. And we can go down this rabbit hole a lot, I guess, if you want to. I know one of the things we were going to talk about is why do people overextend their pelvis? It's for them to find that internal rotation. Like, let's say you've got someone that's bilaterally extended on both sides. What that person is usually trying to do is create an internal rotation and force producing strategy. And then we can give them, by restoring internal rotation of the pelvis, a reason to find internal rotation without having to compensate to get it. So it's kind of a layered answer there. I hope I didn't go off the reservation too far. But uh, to summarize, I think that we can still provide constraints within the weight room to allow them to access better positions. And that might clean some stuff up along the way, but it's not so dramatic to where it's like, I'm trying to completely revolutionize how you organize yourself as an athlete. Yeah. Would you say that, so lateral athletes who are in sports that revolve or involve a lot of lateral, like basketball, I think being a prime or tennis is a good one too. But would you say those athletes have a tendency because you need internal rotation to be an efficient mm -hmm. mover there. If you don't have a good amount of it, you're going to have to find some other way to move around. So would you say an athlete who has, it, that is your sport and that's your movement, like they'll compensate over time to be extended because functionally they need to internally rotate their femur to be able to, you know, deal with defender or the offensive player and move and things like that. Or is it, they're trying to find something. Is it, not just that, <laughs> or is it that too broad of a brush to paint on, on the, that population? I think it's multifactorial in nature. 
I think if you take a look at a lot of traditional strength and conditioning programs, a lot of them are biasing a lot of bilateral symmetrical stance activities where they're promoting a lot of extension, which I think is okay. You know, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. And I think that those programs do get results, but I think these athletes are already biased towards producing force, a late stance strategy, so to speak. So I think the weight room is an opportunity to help train them in a, in a way that can restore variability, but also get them to move in and out of these different positions. Because if you're dumped forward and you're in extension on both sides of your pelvis and you got that anterior orientation, then you're in internal rotation of your femurs, your bias towards that. And then some athletes can present with a limitation in internal rotation and it gets more complicated than this, but they could already be there. So it's harder to access that. That's why I think helping them find their heels, bringing their pelvis back on both sides can give them somewhere to internally rotate to in the first place. So I think that the compensation, yeah, it might be, it might be something that's leading to limitations or it's something that's helping them find what they don't have. But I, I think that just brings us back to the point of like, when would we want to intervene and when would we don't? And my general rule for that is if they're getting injured consistently mm -hmm. or there's a massive glaring red flag or potentially like injury risk. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about hypnosis and mental training for athletes. While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix Formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the Shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, I definitely would concur with the uh, not not trying to really get into the, I'm not going to correct you if you don't need to be, you know, if you're, right. even if you present a little what looks to be odd or off or doesn't fit my paradigm, but you're not getting hurt. Mm -hmm. I just think that the human body is so awesome and miraculous, really. And, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes we don't give it credit. And so I, I would definitely agree with that. So what you were saying with the wedge, and I've definitely been squatting with heels elevated for some time. It was Angus um, Bradley show that really I was like, man, why would I not squat with my heels elevated for the most part? Yeah. And it just seems like it is. He said it's the ultimate hedge. It's the ultimate hedge to prevent yourself from like these compensation patterns that are going to be hurting you. And so you were saying that when you elevate the heels, you're standing on a wedge and squatting, that is externally rotating your tibias more or it's 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 helping someone who's really internally rotated find a little more external rotation in their tibias or femurs. Uh, was that correct? Yeah. So you can think of it like this from the bottom up. If you elevate your heel on a wedge, let's say it's three quarters of an inch or an inch, then you're going to be biasing your lower limb towards plantar flexion. You're starting in a more negative tibia angle, which is creating relatively more supination at your foot up the chain that feeds into your femur and also into your pelvis where you can start 
in a relatively more counter mutated and externally rotated position of your pelvis. As you get deeper into a squat, you do need to find some degree of internal rotation and pronation of the foot. Think of what the hardest point of the squat is. It's kind of parallel, and that's where you need to produce that internal rotation force. Utilize your glutes, utilize your hip extensors to help push you out of internal rotation back to external rotation. But if you imagine what your shins are going to do as you go deeper into a squat, they're going to become you know, more positive in angle, right? Mm -hmm. But if you were to think about how that is relative to your foot, imagine your foot is on that slanted surface and then your tibia translates forward. What's that going to look like when you're entering sort of that bottom position? You're really not in that much of a forward tibial position relative to where your foot is because you're going to translate it forward, but then you might actually just be at a 90 degree angle of your foot to your tibia when you're at the bottom position, depending on how deep you go, of course. And then you're kind of setting yourself up to find pronation and you're setting yourself up to find internal rotation because you're starting from a position of external rotation and supination, which is really helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. It, I mean, it makes sense. Like you really want to be able to utilize, uh, and I think of it for me, like my knees, I, my knees can hit each other with no pain in a squat. Like that's how internally biased towards internal rotation I am. And I think part of that is just genetic too. Like my son is like that. Like he can, he can sit, and I know kids are obviously way more flexible, but like he can sit and like let his legs in complete internal rotation and his heels are just sitting there on either side of him. Like it's, it's uh, as his knees are flexed, like it's really crazy. But for me, I mean, the wedge is, is just, it's unbelievable how much better it feels. I mean, it's, it's not mm -hmm. even close. And I think for me being so internally rotated, I mean, that does give me a little more of that bandwidth. And it does make sense too, to think about it from, it's just a more supinated, it's, it does fit the bill of your, your more plantar flexed, your toes are pointed down more. It's more of a supinated position. And I think about even too, I'd, I guess just the role of that, even like supination acceleration, maybe I won't take it too far, but it's, it's also cool to think about if you just reverse it and your toes are on it now, now it's completely the opposite. And exactly. it's like, well, how simple is that? That's the simplest thing ever. It's like, Hey, when you're going to squat, take a wedge, you know, elevate your heels. And then when you're going to, you know, do RDLs or whatever, just turn it around, elevate your toes the other way. It's really that simple. I feel like, and, and I've, I was really turned on to the, I've seen elevating the, the toes forever, but Every time that was always presented in a, in a hinge, every time I was, that was always presented, it was just for kind of this blanket mobility, you know, term. And so that never really like, I don't know, I've never been a huge like mobility guy in some senses of the word. So maybe it just didn't really jive with me that much. But when I think about it in terms of opening up like the space in the pelvis <laughs> and mm -hmm. letting, you know, basically being the functional opposite of the suit you you're just feeding the body better pronation especially for people who have a hard time getting there i've noticed a big changes with athletes who have a hard time doing any sort of hinge pattern and as soon as we'll elevate the heels a little bit it's it's really substantial and then we can take it away and they can just move better it's it's um Absolutely. that's and i i like that more than just thinking oh it's just stretching you more or something you know it's it's actually creating a bandwidth for you to open up and move yourself better yeah. I like how you said open up too, because a lot of people will say like, you know, I'm going to open up my hips and they'll do the pigeon stretch, right? Where they kind of lay down and they put one leg out in front of the other and lean into it. Like you're not opening up hips when you do that. Opening up hips would be getting internal rotation back because you're creating, that's what's creating the space of the femur to rotate within 
the hip socket. If you're doing external rotation, really you're moving your femur away from it. So really true opening of the hips and creating that leverage to go into internal and external rotation would be to first be able to get in your hip through internal rotation. Yeah. I, I, it's interesting too seeing athletes who you just start to notice people who just run. It's just not right. And you notice they have a lot of stuff that's going on with their like tibial rotation. It's, or, or even when they do, um, like I like to have them stand on PVC pipes and we'll rock the feet medial lateral or inwards to outwards. And, you know, some athletes just, it's like, you don't see the kneecap moving at all. It's like, there's just, things aren't rotating very well and space isn't opening very well. And just thinking of it from a joints perspective rather than, yeah, just a, just kind of mobility tends to be, it's definitely been a big element for me. That's really helped a lot of things. Absolutely. I think as soon as you start changing the perspective of this is a muscular driven strategy versus this is a joint position strategy, things start to fall in line because I'm sure you've had people on this show say that muscular orientation is secondary to joint position. And that for me has been the most helpful perspective shift I've taken in terms of just how the body works. Because if you know what joint positions need to happen, how we get there, then the muscles are easy because it's just going to follow that. And you can just look at the attachment points from there. It's pretty easy. Yeah. The Gary Ward's, uh, I forget if it's the first rule of movement or it's one of them, but it's the joints act and muscles Mm -hmm. react. And, you know, I I think we could have saved, I mean, you know, it's good to learn muscles and all that stuff. And, you know, universities need something to teach and (laughs) it's good to learn, but, uh, it's like, it's, it's funny that that's the first thing that seems to be the paradigm with just fitness and human performance in general adverse as opposed to the skeleton and levers and joint mechanics and it's not i mean i really don't think it's that terribly complicated i mean in, in anatomy and kinesiology or whatever you're learning you know dozens if not you know even hundreds of muscles and functions and origins and insertions and if even half of that time was spent just talking about pronation and supination and internal and external rotation and how these different exercises have different effects on those joint movements, I think we would be in a little better place. And yeah, it's definitely a very powerful concept. I mean, I can only speak on my own experience when I took my anatomy course. Uh, When I went to Oregon State, my kinesiology degree, we had to take anatomy for a whole year, which thank God, that's awesome. But everything was muscles, muscles drive, muscles drive position, muscles are everything. It, It was only until I started to learn, do a little bit more continuing education that I realized that it's really quite the opposite. And I, I see this all the time with people that come into my course, they're like so muscularly driven and everything is about how muscles mm-hmm. work and react. But as soon as you realize that this rotation and when, once you start thinking about biotensegrity, things start to click into place of really, it's exactly what Gary Ward says. It's the joints act, muscles react. Connor, I wanted to go back to, you said this a while ago. It's, so this was something that was still in my head that I wanted to get to before we got into um, restoring internal rotation. But that was, uh, I believe you talked about something um, like when an athlete is in a split stance using a wedge, that seemed a little foreign to me. I just was, or was that, was that just bilateral or maybe better, better termed, like if an athlete's in a split position uh, and you're maybe doing like a front foot elevated or uh, are you are you altering foot position in a split stance or like a lunge stance type position with an athlete at all? Or is that just generally going to be more neutral? Yeah, I can think of it like um, 
let's imagine we're in a split stance. I'll do both front foot elevated and front heel elevated. I got my pelvis model to show you here, but it helps me explain it uh, verbally if I've got this in front of me. So if you take a step forward with one leg, and let's just imagine you're taking a step forward with your left leg, then your left pelvis is going to be biased towards external rotation. So just simply by being in a split stance position, you're going to be biasing more of that external rotation and quote unquote stupination of front left hip and left foot in this instance. So if you were to elevate the front foot, let's say you got four inches of elevation under that thing and you're still in that stance, what you're doing is you're offloading more weight from your forefoot onto your rear foot. So that's going to help people find their heels more. That's going to help people come back and find more of that negative tibia angle. And then imagine you go down into that split squat and that foot elevated position. You're going to become more of a vertical tibia angle. When you get deeper into hip flexion around, it depends on the individual, but 60 to 90 to 100 degrees, you're going to be biasing more internal rotation of the hip. And what's great about this is once you get down into a split squat, your tibia becomes more vertical, which means that that's more of a mid-stance position of the pelvis, right? Because deeper hip flexion, internal rotation, vertical tibia equals mid-stance. So you get that, and then your weight translates more forward anyway onto your midfoot, and then when you push back out of that, you're back to where you started. If you were to do a heel elevation on the front foot, like let's say you got that wedge, that squat wedge, and you just put it on the front heel, and you're in that split-stance position, that's not something I would load very heavy. That is not a hypertrophy exercise. That is not a, a one rep max exercise. That is a, I'm trying to get a specific biomechanical adaptation as a result of that. I'm going to be starting, I'm going to be biasing a ton of that negative tibia angle. And then when I go through that, it's the same thing we talked about with the relative positioning of the ankle and also the tibia. When you're in that bottom position, sure, you're your tibia is going forward, but relative to your foot, it's still pretty vertical. You can imagine that by just thinking about as you go forward, we know that the tibia is going to internally rotate more. But if you look at the angle it's creating with your foot, it's going to be more 90 degrees at that bottom position. So really, that's biasing the same thing of early to mid stance. If you wanted to load it up, I would definitely recommend going with more of a front foot elevated position, but both can have value. I'm partial to the heel elevated position because of that thing we talked about with the overpronated feet. If the feet are very much overpronated, mm. I find that the heel elevated position with a light load is pretty beneficial for getting them to go into a little bit more of that tibial internal rotation at the bottom position without risking that overpronation. Got it. So it's kind of like what we said with the squats. So that basketball player yes. or, or court sport player, whatever, late stance bias, feet are turned out of it, trying to find, like Garrett said, trying to find pronation. But they're so by he- elevating a heel for them in a split stance as well, it's kind of, it's basically the same thing as a bilateral stance. It's just a unilateral version of it. And you just probably shouldn't load it very heavy. Is that <laughs> kind of the, the essence of it? Cool. I'll have to yeah, play, I'll yeah, to play around with that. Very similar to the squat. That's right. I've, of all the things, I've actually haven't seen a whole lot of that. I, I'll, I'll have to mess around with that. I, it's interesting. As you're okay, so now we're on the split squats, right? I have two things that have kind of entered my my brain, and so one is, and anyone who's had athletes do iso extreme iso lunges has probably seen this. And so now it's maybe starting to make sense to me on some level, but like I tend to see two compensations out of those athletes at the bottom, and it, when people get tired, they're down in an iso lunge and they're going like one minute, two minutes, whatever. 
And I, mm-hmm. the biggest thing I see is people who they're in an ISO lens and they start with the tibia perpendicular to the floor. And over time, their first movement is for that, that knee to start coming back towards them. So basically, they're, they're, um, instead of their knee going over their toe, it goes the opposite way. So they now have their, their shin is coming back towards them, basically. I hope I described that well. And I see that all the time. And it, dri- it would drive me nuts. I would just think that they're not trying very hard. And maybe that was true. If you pull with your hamstring harder, you can avoid that. Or Dan Fichter talks about tying a band around the, you can tie a band around the calf and then pull with that. And that should remedy that. But so those athletes who are doing that, those people who would maybe, uh, when they get tired, they're just not good at getting to their forefoot, probably. They're like a narrow ISA who lives on their heel. I mean, I should just check these athletes and see. But uh, yeah, what do you think about that? Uh, that's um, like what compensations you would see in a lunch, people gravitating towards something or the other. Yeah, I think the most simple explanation for that is that they just literally cannot hold it much longer on that front leg. So it's very similar to people that can't really do a split squat very well. They offload more weight onto their back foot and all of a sudden their back quad hurts because mm-hmm. either if they don't have hip extension or their front leg is really just that weak. Yeah, weak. Uh, yeah, think, that's, that's a big yeah, one too. Yeah. Like honestly, I think I, I don't really have a very sexy answer for that because I think it is that that's the easiest possible path of least resistance. It is to offload more weight from that working leg onto your back leg. And sure, there might be some some shin angle stuff involved in that. And there might be some just like overall, like there might be some going on with the tendon in the muscle. But ultimately, I think that those people just simply do not have the capacity and the strength to hold that. So they do it by, hey, real leg, I want you to take some more of this load. I do know what you're talking about, though. And I do see that. Yeah. It's okay to say people are just too weak. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I mean, it's fun, really it's fun it to talk about all the rotations, the joint openings, but. I was, yeah, it's, and I've seen it like people who do that in the lunge, like they're never strong squatters. In fact, I would be very hesitant to put them on a bar because it's like, it's almost like they just can't maintain the co-contractions around the knee joint. It's like they're, I don't know, they just yeah. want to go back into a skeletal strategy or something. Or like you said, they're just going to roll back in the back leg. And yeah, whether it's an ISO lunge or it's just a, a split squat, they put more weight on than they could handle physically. It's probably pretty similar. Um, all right. What do you think about this? So, I'd spent a little bit of time with uh, Gary Marinovich and then like in the Marvin Marinovich training system, one of the things they do is they got those like little discs and all the time they do split squats with um, the back leg. A lot of times the back legs on a physio ball or something. And then the front leg will be on like a balance disc with like a little, maybe it's like a 10 foot disc and there's a little ball in the bottom. So it rolls around and they can, Marv would say that it gives, it lets the body do what it wants. This takes me to Marv stuff because I've, gotten really good results doing that stuff i love that stuff and it's almost like it's almost like well if you needed your heel elevated to do that squat you know you're on this balance disc maybe your body picks that so mm. i'm just curious i don't know i'm just um and then the way the force holds i don't know i'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that type of thing if you've seen that before have you seen some of that training i honestly have not but to me it just sounds like they're creating a constraint where they don't really have to say much and yeah. then they're getting the outcome that they want but it's happening with some technology or some sort of device. Whereas, you know, like we all have different perspectives, right? I'm just partial towards using a load to get that position that yeah. I want. And Hey, maybe he's got some, got some uh, little extra special going on with that. Maybe he's getting something out of it that I'm not aware of, but I just haven't seen it. I'm not aware of it. So I can't really speak on it, but it sounds like he's onto something with creating that constraint and that position that he's trying to get without really having to get the athlete to think a lot. 
Yeah, it makes me. I just I don't have those discs actually. I want to get them. They all the only ones available are like these little teeny ones that are like half the size. So that's why I haven't got them. Yeah. Like the actual Marinovich ones are like big. They're like at least twelve or fourteen inches, and you can really like get a big foot on there. And I I, I almost want to do that now so I can go watch someone do a split squat with the front foot on it and see what the foot wants to do. You know what I'm saying? Like, and it's almost. I just, I don't know. I just think that stuff's fascinating. And, and I know they did get really good results with that stuff. And a lot of it, they would like be doing it on, um, like they'd have those super cats and be doing it with that stuff. But anyways, mm-hmm. just something that got me, got me on that track. So that's interesting. Though. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll try to find some of that and throw in the show notes. I'm going to look for some, if I don't, if I can't find those discs, I want to build them now. So it's, uh, yeah, that was that I do think that had a lot of, um, just the way Marv would say letting the body choose, I think was interesting in the sense of, you know, it's maybe a little bit different than what we're talking about, like where you're intentionally trying to create a, a, a place for an athlete to get more of what they don't have or give them that more of what they don't have. And then the, on the other side, it's, well, let's just choose a surface that lets you do whatever you want. Cause even a flat surface is a constraint. I did, I tend to not to view those balanced discs as balance i tend to view it as more like opening up degrees of freedom in the foot to kind of let it do whatever so that i've even seen this and i don't know what you think about this i've seen um like jump people who are real good jumpers um they'll get down to the bottom of a squat and then at the bottom of the squat their heels like just come off the ground to get back up mm. to the top of it and i always feel like they'll just go into the forefoot but i was wondering if there's anything else happening there from you know i mean i guess you're that would be more supination which that wouldn't be what you want right at the bottom, I guess. I don't know, like, because you kind of pronate at the bottom, but I don't know. Now, you have any thoughts on that kind of thing, or just think that's probably mostly go to your forefoot, just that's where the power is kind of type situation? Yeah, I mean, I think that we know if, when you're on your forefoot, you can get that co-contraction, you can create that propulsive strategy. And whenever I'm confused of, like, what is this person doing? Why are they doing it? I'm going to think of how are they getting what they don't have via the path resistance. So I guess I'd have to see a, a video of specifically what you're talking about right there. But whenever I'm trying to figure something out and problem solve, I'm going to think, okay, what are they doing? And if you know the athlete, it's definitely way more helpful. What are they doing in their joints to find the path of least resistance? Are they trying to create a more quote unquote stable joint, more mobile? Are they going one joint up, one joint down? What are they doing? And what are they missing proximally or distally? That's needing them to find that compensation. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Okay, I've been like doing tons of rabbit trails here. So let's get <laughs> to... Uh, so we talked about too, like like using the elevation gives you more ER. So athletes, maybe a little bit of the opposite in a sense, athletes who are lacking internal rotation and perhaps mid stance, but maybe let's just start with internal rotation. What are some of your like key rocks in helping athletes who have an internal rotation deficit? to help restore that or show that to them in their movement. Definitely. So I think internal rotation is probably one of the more common limitations that I see, but I think it's representative of a larger global problem. And that is just a lack of variability within the pelvis or just the whole system. And I think people are like sometimes chasing numbers and degrees and things like that. And and it's really like internal rotation is a small piece of a much bigger puzzle. Because internal rotation unlocks the ability for you to find mid-stance and your body can assume certain positions, your thorax responds in a certain way. And then that can help you produce more force or, or yield under certain circumstances. So I think, first of all, it's like, why are we getting internal rotation? If you've established the need that this is something that we want to go after, then okay, great. 
I'm going to think of things as either sort of top down or bottom up. I think you can do both. People that really focus on the foot can think of it that way. But I think people understand it more, generally speaking, when we're talking about top down from the pelvis down to the foot. So what we're trying to get is we're trying to get somewhere to internally rotate to. So if we go way back to when we were talking about anterior orientation of the pelvis, you can have a couple of different things happen. You can have the pelvis being forward, biasing the legs, femurs into internal rotation. And sometimes it can be harder to internally rotate to a position you're already in. So we want to make sure that the orientation of the pelvis is in a neutral starting position because neutral ultimately just means a position for us to find blank after that. So if we're starting neutral, we can find internal rotation. If we're starting internally rotated, it's going to be hard to find more internal rotation. The other thing that can happen is if our pelvis is very far forward, ultimately posture and movement is just a summation of the body trying to find a neutral center of mass running down the body. So all these wacky different postures you see, if you were to draw a line down through the midpoint of their head all the way down to the foot, generally they're going to organize around that because that's just the path of least resistance. So if you've got a pelvis that's very forward in space, sometimes you get this posterior compression of the pelvis, which is the body saying, I'm falling too far forward. So I need to go and grit my glutes and pull myself back so that my pelvis doesn't fall so far forward. So when you have posterior compression of the pelvis, you usually lose internal rotation of the pelvis and also the femurs. So it depends. Are they in one of those two circumstances? Regardless, the goal would be to restore neutrality of the pelvis. Maybe they need to get out of the anterior pelvic tilt, but let's say okay, we got that. They're in a position to where they can start in a neutral position. Internal rotation happens when the innominate bones, the pelvis bones rotate inwards relative to the sacrum, which is going to tip forwards. So to accomplish that, if we go back to what we were talking about with the squat, 90 degrees of hip flexion is about where that internal rotation is maximized plus or minus some degrees, depending on the individual's anatomy and morphology. But I love to restore internal rotation with positions like hinges and positions where we are biasing 90 degrees of hip flexion. You can make that a static position. You can make it a dynamic position. If you want to make it as specific as possible, incorporating the foot as well, you can do something like a split squat with a hip shift and a contralateral load. What that would look like is your left leg is forward. You would try to create this shift of your hips where you're trying to Imagine you're in a split squat right now and you're trying to pull your left knee back and push your right knee forward. That's going to create a shift of your right hip coming slightly forward. That's going to kick on your adductor. And then if you've got a contralateral load, like we talked about before, this is going to allow you to access more of that heel and midfoot. So now you're getting pronation. Now you're getting tibial internal rotation. Now you're getting femoral and pelvic internal rotation relative to those things that are happening down there. So that can be a really good way to drive it. You can also use hinge positions because hinge positions are really effective for driving that hip back, loading the back hip. A really good one that's sort of a go-to of mine is a lateral lunge, but it's not a lateral lunge. It's more of a lateral hinge. So imagine you start in a parallel position. You take a step out with your right foot. When you go and load into that position, you want your pelvis over your femur over your foot and your big toe is in or your nose is over your big toe. That kind of goes into like Pat Davidson's frontal plane checklist cues, if you've ever seen that before. So 
a contralateral load again in that situation is going to help reference that midfoot and heel. So you can load and create internal rotation that way. Those are some ways I like to make it dynamic that you can incorporate in a group setting very easily. You could also do things like a Copenhagen plank, but in 90 degrees of hip flexion. Because once you get deeper into Mm. that hip flexion, your external rotators actually become internal rotators. So what you could do is go into a Copenhagen plank, but just have your knees and hips bent at 90 degrees. And now your adductor is working concentrically for internal rotation. Now your glute meat is working concentrically for internal rotation. And you're creating that strategy. Although I am also someone who likes to get a foot reference involved with that, which is why I'm partial to the other two that I talked about. But ultimately, there's a lot of different things we can do this. You could do a a single leg step down off of a box. Things like that are all fantastic ways to drive it while loading it and not having to do a bunch of stretches or positional drills. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the stretching is always the, I feel like is is the cop out. Uh, I mean, I don't, no, I'm not necessarily anti-stretching, but I just think that there's so many other things to do before we get there. You mentioned the 90-90 Copenhagen, which uh, for people listening, and maybe if you can send me kind of a lot of these, like, or some of these, at least videos you're talking about, yeah. you can throw them in the show notes so people can actually see the videos. But yeah, so that where it's basically like it's a side plank where you're, you have a bench like between your knees. So you have to really get that adductor. And I was thinking about, I forget, I don't remember if I came across this. I think I ended up putting it in speed strength or I know I want to say Brett, it came out of Brett Contreras's research because it's the hip thrust. So it's his thing. But I believe it was that people got on the whole better glute activation when they would squeeze something between their knees when doing hip thrusts than mm. without. And I was just thinking not at the top because that's all so many people care about is the lockout, right? But I'm thinking like when your butt's at the bottom. And you have that squeeze, right? Like, cause that's kind of what you're talking about. And that's that max internal rotation. I don't know what that would necessarily do, like the block and how big the block is, right? But like, it kind of makes sense. Like if that's the place of peak internal rotation, you're just giving that those adductors are really coming in and maybe it's creating more length in the glutes there. So, I don't know. That just, that kind of connected with me there as you were saying that, like the Copenhagen and then a, a hip thrust with a squeeze in there a block or something like that. I love that you brought that up. Because what you're doing with that, and another way you could bias that internal rotation would be to do a box squat to 90 degrees. And then you can just do it as simple as that. Or you could do it if you were trying to get really specific and your goal of the exercise was internal rotation. Hold a ball that keeps your knees in line with your toes, squat to a box at 90 degrees, and then come out of it. So that ball is providing a reference. And I hope I don't lose people when I say this for your pelvic outlet, which is the very bottom most portion of your pelvis. If you imagine your pelvis as a cylinder, that bottom portion right there where your pelvic floor is, that's going to open up and your pelvic outlet, your pelvic inlet, the top of your pelvis is going to become more closed. The bottom of your pelvis is going to become more open. Mm -hmm. That's going to help bias that internal rotation. That's what that ball between the knees is so effective. You could apply that to a hinge or a squat pattern, and that would be a really good way of doing it. I think that feeds into very well. I'm a big fan of N1 education. Cassian Hansen specifically has a lot of really good research on exactly what you said about hip thrust and also squat positions. What they found was these wider stance sumo squats actually used less glutes than the more narrow stance toes straight ahead because in order for a muscle to optimally contract, it needs to stretch first. So if you got this wide sumo squat where your toes are pointing out, sure, you might be able to lift a little bit more because your bar path is different and you're using different levers, but 
ultimately you're not going to be able to create that stretch in your glutes at the bottom position of internal rotation. Your glutes are hip extensors and external rotators. So you're creating that ability for them to stretch, to contract, which is why the wide stance squat actually uses more AD doctors than glutes, which is counterintuitive to what a lot of people think. Yeah. I mean, that's it right there. I, that's kind of like the first time I did, I don't remember, it might've been at Rocky Snyder's place a year ago and I'm doing basically like a bowler squat, but the knee going over the big toe, not straight ahead. And it's like, it's funny, just, just as soon as you get out of the knees straight ahead paradigm for the single leg stuff is a huge one. But like my knee was going over my big toe, like kind of rotating around a little bit and that basically a bowler squat. But I was like, man, my glute and my VMO are so lit up right now. This is what that spiral is all about. I get it. Like you got to lengthen before it's going to come back and you can optimally load it more when you lengthen it. And it, that's why it does crack me up when I watch people squat or hinge or hip thrust and they're just cranking the end, you know, they're just like trying to lock yeah. out the end. Like they're going to get that little extra and I get my mm-hmm. muscle connection. Sure. I get it. But like, that's not, you know, once you realize like the loading and created the internal rotation in that 90 degrees and that's the key. I love that that research is out there too. I, I hadn't heard that, but I, I absolutely believe it hundred percent. Um, would oh. you say, so people who, um, Mike, when Mike Kozak and Stephen Laflamme were on, they were talking about, um, they were talking about more in context of someone who is like a, like Mike calls it Hank Hill, but, but like you're posteriorly tilted, you're more in e- externally rotated, you have a hard time internally rotating. They really don't squat those guys. Uh, I mean, would you say, I think it's more single leg squatting for them. I mean, would you just say that and just don't go below 90, probably generally speaking for that type of group? Or do you think you can, if you kind of do the right things with it or what, what's your take on what to do with those, those people who are in that camp generally? We're talking about people who have a lot of external rotation and yeah, limited. Yes. Rotation. Yes. And limited. Yeah. Limited IR. I think it would be good in their prep drills, their warm up, so to speak, to get them to be able to access a little bit of internal rotation, but no, I'm going to actually be pushing them into that internal rotation. Assuming that, you know, a measurement I care about is how much hip flexion they have. Mm-hmm. So let's say like they didn't have 90 degrees of hip flexion, which does happen more often than most people think. I'm usually not going to push someone into a position they can't access on yeah. just like even a basic table test because why would I do that? They're just going to compensate. If they can't find it on a table, yeah. how are they going to find it with both? So let's say they do have 90 degrees of hip flexion, which you usually see with these people that do have a lot of external rotation then I'm going to actually, yes, be biasing a lot of that internal rotation because that's what they don't have. And we can create constraints with loads, with foot position, which is going to help us be able to get that internal rotation back. I think those people benefit tremendously from a lot of the positions that we were talking about with the hinges, the ball between the knees activities. I've seen really cool things happen with actually prioritizing those types of things. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying, what they're saying is pretty darn similar, except for like, I think for you, the ball between the knees, bilateral squatting, like if you're going to bilateral squat that crowd, they should have a ball between their knees. And probably I'd imagine as soon as they get to the depth where they're, (laughs) they're starting to compensate, like that's, that's got to be it for that. I mean, it wouldn't be some of the really ER people I've worked with. I feel like I, I don't, I didn't do a ball between their knees, but I feel like some of those people would really struggle to get down to a parallel position in a squat, like versus someone who has more internal. That's why you could do a heels elevated squat to a 90 degrees box with a ball between the knees. Uh, and yeah. then you're, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think, yeah, you know, Mike's a really smart guy. I talked to him earlier today, actually. And um, yeah, he's, he's a brilliant guy. I think everyone has slightly different ways of doing it. But as for bilateral squatting, like I probably wouldn't put a 
a bar on someone's back or have them front squat with the ball between the knees. I don't think that that's really necessary. I think it's going to limit output unless they really need to find some internal rotation, then I'll probably consider it. But I think these things are better served in prep. And I think that we should, and assuming there's not major issues going on, like let's let them have their um, extension. Let's let them get after and drive high output in their primary block of their training session. But the question is, is can they get out of it? Can they leave it? on the platform? Can they leave it in the squat rack and go reaccess those other mechanics after they've driven their primary stimulus? Yeah, I, I do agree too. I was thinking as soon as I asked you the question too, I was thinking about the, the hinge though and the, you know, obviously there's the ball and, and the loading stuff, but even like the hinge too and the IR and elevating the heels too. I mean, that's just the other like end of it. And oh, I, I, I was going to say this too. Do you feel like a wide ISA um person would benefit too from you you mentioned um like ex- i just think of it as like getting the bottom of the pelvic floor to open that's my just very generalist mm-hmm. terms and i know i i believe that those wide isas have a harder time yielding and yes. like opening to the bottom of a squat so do you think that someone who has a hard time like someone who has a hard time just yielding and getting down and dropping would that help someone to yield more to have a ball between the knees type strategy Usually a ball between the knees is going to bias that pelvic outlet to open. So I would probably, if someone wanted to yield more, I think squat, deep squatted positions are really good for that because think about like what the pelvis needs to do, like that pelvic outlet opening, the bottom of the pelvis coming further apart from each other. That's a position of uh, sacral mutation and Mm -hmm. internal rotation. So you're not going to be able to yield if your pelvic floor is spread apart and ascended. In order to yield, we need for... We need the pelvis to externally rotate, the sacrum to counter mutate for the guts to drop down into the pelvic floor, relatively speaking, of course. And that's that yielding. But if your pelvic floor is chronically ascended somewhere to a wide, and I'm a wide, so I kind of I kind of get this, that's going to potentially drive more of that strategy with the ball between the knees. But if you can get that person to access a very deep squat with some of that um external rotation i think that's going to go a, a much further way you can use a heel oh, elevation to do that got it and that's really quite helpful uh okay now let's make it se- all right just clicked in my head because i remember i was seeing angus bradley doing some i believe he was doing some squats with like a light band to get the knees out but it wasn't like a monster walk thing it was just a create yielding thing as i remember it so that makes sense now and then i was thinking when i had pat davidson on recently like uh, maybe like six months ago or something but we were talking about how me a narrow when I would squat when I was in high school, I would my knees would just slam together. And it was oh. like talking about it as a strategy to... I mean, actually, the funny thing is, ironically with all that, my knee pain actually disappeared in about three months of doing deep squats, regardless of the fact that my knees were basically slamming into each other. When it got heavy. Like when it wasn't, I think they yeah. just kind of went forward or whatever. But that Pat, I had asked Pat, well, why would I do that strategy of the knees pinching towards each other? And he was like, it was, it's basically to keep your pelvic floor from dropping. Like it's to yes. keep that bounce. And that's what I was. I was just a bounce. I was a pogo stick or a, a, a high tensile pogo stick. Like I would just bounce along. And so that was yeah. showing up in my squatting too. So, well that, that, okay. That makes sense then if we don't want the, so I could also just, I'll think of squeezing a ball between the knees when I don't want the pelvic floor to descend and yield and the little light band that angus was using if i do need help getting down there so it's all straight in my head now i appreciate you yeah. helping me there yeah that's good stuff that's a good that's a generally good way to look at it you can get more into detail of like you know what i talked about when you get deeper into a squat 
technically you are driving some internal rotation with the band around your knees because muscles like your piriformis actually become internal rotators the deeper you get into hip flexion. So there, it gets a little tricky that way, but that's a generally good rule to follow. And I kind of live by it too. And I've had good results from doing it, but things do get tricky when you add a band because just muscular position responds to joint orientation. And it just depends on what your goal is. But I think if you were to simplify it, that would be a good way to go. Got it. Cool. Yeah. I, <laughs> that's what my brain just tries to do. I, I can only juggle so many terms that are above like, yay, great, you know, like out of, yeah. out of 10 complicated terms and I just have to make a bunch of threes and then my brain can say, all right, I know what I'm doing now. So at least with some of this, this the PRI stuff, at least, you know, that's, that's my, my dealing with how I deal with the response. So well, anyways, I, I consider myself uh, a lot more enlightened in that now. And I, I appreciate your time, Connor. We only probably got through two of the questions and that's okay. Those are the best shows because then, you know, it's just the, to me, it's just the depth. And um, we definitely went into a lot of depth on those things. So I'm, I really appreciate your time, man. Thanks for coming on the show. And uh, before we get out of here, if you could just share um, where can people find you, catch up with you. And, and uh, if you have any, um, I think you have a biomechanics course. If you want to share something about that quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pleasure to be on, Joel. This was awesome. So people can find me at Connor, spelled like Connor McGregor, C-O-N-O-R underscore Harris underscore on both Twitter and Instagram. I actually am running my biomechanics course right now. The next program starts August 1st and early bird pricing ends July 14th. But even if you're listening to this later than that, you can probably still get in. You can slide in and uh, we got over 100 people in the first week, so I'm really excited to see what happens. It just keeps growing, and it's a, it's my favorite thing to do. So if people are interested in that, learning more about this stuff, I would recommend they check that out. All right, awesome. Well, thank you again, Connor. I uh, appreciate you being on today. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for tuning in for another show. We appreciate you being here. And if you enjoyed it, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you're listening to. We will see you all next week with another great guest. Have a good one.